by the power of the Holy Spirit working through word and sacrament. Then we hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. My friends, it's just that simple. It's in the divine service that he's there for you, that he delivers the forgiveness. That's where he promises forgiveness will be. Uh, And so that's why it's so important uh, to be in church. We long that God would answer the prayer when we pray, deliver us from evil. Get me out of here. Get me out of this sin-filled world. And that is Jesus Christ uh, who says, Do not count their sin against them, for my blood has paid the price for that. Now on 95.7 FM, it's Proclaiming the One with Pastor Clint Poppy and Pastor Adam Moline from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Daniel Golden. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Each week we come together and we take a look at the upcoming readings for our Sunday worship service. Today we're going to be looking at the last Sunday of the church year. The uh, number of Sundays after the Trinity uh, are variable depending on whether Easter is early or late. But the last Sunday of the church year is a fixed Sunday. And so today we're going to be looking at some readings that really help us bridge the gap from the themes that we've had these last few weeks, talking about uh, the end of the world, Judgment Day, uh, get ready because Judgment Day is coming, uh, bridging the gap between the those readings and that focus and uh, the beginning focus of Advent, which is... The end of the world, Judgment Day, Jesus is coming. It is, uh, it's marvelous, and uh, it's really a shame when so many churches skip the readings during the month of November for oh, Friendship Sunday or Stewardship Sunday or any and everything simply because they want to avoid talking about these particular topics. Pastor, a comment on that before we get into our introit. Yeah, judgment comes, and right quick, and uh, it is too bad that congregations are afraid to talk about this, especially because there's so much wrong that is taught in other church bodies uh, in regards to this particular topic, things like the rapture and the uh, um, millennium uh, misinterpretations and things like that, and since there's so much that is wrong about it, it oftentimes saps the hope and the comfort that we ought to have about the end of the world away from us to focus our attention on things that are alarming and worrying and also take our focus off of Jesus. And so that's why it's important that we do celebrate this time of the church year and talk about this particular topic. Hope and comfort in Jesus. I think you just summed up very well everything we're going to be talking about in our program today as we look at the readings for the last Sunday of the church year. Our introit is a a few verses from Psalm 39 with the antiphon, that's the bracket at the beginning and the end, from Isaiah 35. Vicar, take it away. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. O Lord, Make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. 
Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. Words from Psalm 39 and Isaiah 35, the introit appointed for the last Sunday of the church here. Pastor, the ransomed of the Lord. Isaiah is talking about um, the end of the world, the new heavens and the new earth. Those uh, first 10 verses in Isaiah 35 are just awesome and majestic verses to teach about and to preach on. Who are the ransomed of the Lord? You sound like you're quoting uh, Revelation chapter 7 there. Uh, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. Uh, This is the same idea here. And I love Isaiah 35 because uh, he he says this in verse 8, just a few verses before our, our passage. He says, a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. In other words, uh, there's a highway leading into heaven, uh, not to uh, uh, excite you Michael Landon fans, but there's a highway to heaven uh, that the righteous are entering in on and uh, glory and power forgiven by Jesus Christ. Uh, These ransom that are talked about are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They are us. They are those who have been saved by Jesus Christ. And so it's kind of a neat picture to begin this intro. When I think of a ransom, I think of kidnapping. And I think of money that has been paid to kidnappers so that people can be set free. How can I put that in a Christian context, Vicar? Well, redemption is what what takes place when all the sins of the past, present, and future are paid for by the holy, precious blood of Christ on the cross. It's a full ransom, a full payment, um, all debt taken care of. So uh, did God kidnap people? Is that why we have to buy him off with a, with a ransom? No, man committed sin. Um, man has original sin and the, the flesh, the world is made of that sin. And God is a righteous God. Judgment has to come upon that sin. And Jesus takes that for us. Okay. Um, there, there are many different uh, theories of the atonement, and some of them are quite silly. And so uh, just to make that crystal clear, that uh, we are indebted because of our sin, and uh, God knows we can't pay it. We had that, uh, that reading just uh, uh, a Sunday or two before with regard to the person who had a debt he couldn't pay. And uh, the loving, gracious king forgave that debt. Pastor, the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion. Uh, return from where? And it says return to Zion. What, what is going on here? What, what is this? It sounds like travel of some kind. What's happening? Well, uh, Isaiah's... Uh, f- words here are prophecy. So oftentimes prophecy has a fulfillment uh, at a more close stage and then also at a additional stage into the future. And so this is true for uh, this particular passage. Uh, in its immediate context is in 586 BC, the Babylonians led by King Nebuchadnezzar will um, besiege Jerusalem, destroy it, and carry those who are within its walls uh, away into Babylon for a period of exile. Uh, about 70 years worth. 
And at the end of this time, then a guy named Cyrus the Great, uh, who's the first Persian ruler of the same empire, will allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem, or uh, the colloquial name Zion, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls, and to uh, uh, go back there to their old way of living. And so the immediate context is that particular series of events that takes place uh, in the 6th century B.C. Um, the, the bigger picture, then, is us, that we are the ones who are here uh, in this world of sin and sorrow. As the hymn says, I'm but a stranger here, heaven is my home. And uh, Zion then stands in for that, and when our ransom is uh, finally realized, uh, we will leave this world behind and enter into the world to come to live there before God forever in his kingdom. And so both these things are true and both prophesied by the words of Isaiah here. When uh, when I think about the end of the world, and especially how the world talks about the end of the world, we have global cooling, we have global warming, we have, since we can't make up our mind on that, we have climate change, and it appears that... Uh, we are constantly being scared that the end of the world is coming, so you better do something about it. Uh, here in our uh, antiphon, Isaiah 35.10, it says, The ransom of the Lord shall come to Zion, return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Vicar, that sounds like the exact opposite message that the world is teaching. Yes, we are returning to Zion, the heavenly city, with, with singing as in we do at worship as well uh, when heaven comes to us. Pastor, um, the world would try to teach us that the world is coming to an end, so you better do something to preserve the world. How is that the opposite of the message that God gives us in his word? Well, um, they are right in the sense that the world is coming to an end. That's exactly what our Lord has said. But they are trying to take Christ out of that as if uh, it's up to us to change that, if it's up to us to make it better and last forever. And that that whole idea then takes uh, our eyes off of Jesus and puts justification by grace through faith in jeopardy. And so the reality is, while the world's coming to an end, Christ already has accomplished what's necessary for this to be undone. And, and the bad news is, uh, I guess you could say, this world doesn't stand a chance. It's going to be destroyed and uh, destroyed with fire, as it's written in, uh, I think, Peter's epistle. Um, but the promise is that there'll be a new world, a new creation that is perfect and holy and without um, spot or uh, undefiled, and it will last forever. And that's the place that God is going to take us away from this world to the new world that is to come. And so we have all these people who are uh, saying these things about the world coming to an end. You know, what's that one politician that she said just, uh, you know, we have what? two years or something, and the world will be over. AOC. Yeah, I, I don't remember what I, her name is. Something, so, something Cortez. Um, that the world is coming to an end. We don't know the day or the hour, but we know, and this is where the hope and the comfort and the joy and even the singing comes from, we know that Christ has already taken care of this problem by dying and rising again. And I think, uh, you know, it's quoted from, I think, Revelation, and it's pictured in the movie The Passion of the Christ when he's carrying the cross. He says, look, Mom, I'm making all things new. 
And that's the truth, and that's the hope, and that's the comfort that Christians have. Now, you talk about all this hope and comfort at the end of the world, and then the uh, next line in our intro, Psalm 39, verse 4 says, O Lord, make me to know my end and what the measure of my days are, how fleeting I am. Uh, How does that tie in, Vicar, um, to know that I am mortal and I am not going to live forever? How, How is that possibly good news? Oh, the Lord gives us reassurance in his word. The more we stay in his word, the more we hear the word, the stronger our faith is. And it reassures us to know what our end is and uh, what the, the life that is to come. If my time is fleeting and my days are but a few hand breaths, my lifetime is as nothing before you, Pastor. How's that good news? Well, um, we have to go all the way back to maybe Genesis to understand why our lives are so short. You know, we have uh, Adam and Eve uh, living 900 years, and it gets uh, about that length for the first 10 generations, and then it starts to shrink at the Word of God, who says, I will not contend with man forever. The good news of having a shorter life is that we cannot trust in ourselves and thus be Uh, led into a false faith to be dead forever. Uh, A short life means at some point here in the near future, we'll have nothing left to rely on except for our Lord. And that's the place that our faith and our reliance ought to be for the entire time. And so we have that reality, and maybe it's hard to understand in the short time here, but that's, that's actually good news. If we cling too tightly to the things of this world then the things of this world become our God, become our hope, become our salvation, and they will always let us down. But our hope is in God, who has loved us with an everlasting love, and the proof of that is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. We need to take a short break. This is Proclaiming the One for the last Sunday of the church year. We'll be right back. to K-N-N-A-L-P, 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Daniel Golden. We're looking at the readings for the last Sunday of the church here and the intro that you heard coming into this program. Uh, some people have said the greatest hymn ever written. Wake, awake, for night is flying. Uh, Pastor, you're kind of our resident hymn expert, music expert, classical music expert here at Good Shepherd. Uh, What is your reaction to somebody that would uh, really, really, really say that uh, this particular hymn, Wake, Awake, is uh, one of the classic great hymns of Christendom? I'd say they're probably right. (laughs) 
<laughs> it is one of the uh, the great hymns of uh, Christendom. <clears throat> And it's written by a guy named Philip Nikolai, uh, who would have died right before the uh, Thirty Years' War began. Uh, but the the hymn uh, takes elements from all sorts of different scripture passages with that idea, uh, especially if we're going to see this in our gospel lesson today, of the end of the world coming and the comfort and the hope we have that Jesus is going to take us out of this world and into the world yet to come. And uh, it's been treated by some of the great Lutheran musicians, Heinrich Schutz, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. In fact, uh, the next episode of Bringing Bach Back will look at his cantata written for this particular hymn, and it's probably very familiar to many people. They don't even realize it. Um, many times it's even used as wedding intro, uh, the bride entering into the church music, the uh, particular Bach setting for this particular hymn. So, you know, it is beautiful. It is wonderful. It carries a rich and deep theology, uh, and uh, we should probably sing it as often as possible in church. Wake, awake, for night is flying. In part, based on the gospel reading for the last Sunday of the church year, Matthew 25, 1 to 13, one of the most unusual, if not bizarre, parables that Jesus ever told. Vicar? Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the, bar the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went, with, went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. That's the bottom line on this uh, particular parable. Pastor, tell us a little bit about the wedding customs in first century Palestine here. Uh, is this an odd or unusual kind of a setting? Is this a very common setting? What's happening? Uh, it is very common, and it actually fits in with their practices very well. Um, the way that a wedding would take place back in that day and age was that a man would come into a formal contract with the family of a woman, and they would, uh, you know, I don't know that they would sign documents, but they would come into a contract, a legally binding contract. You didn't need to sign documents back then. Right. I mean, you could, but your word was as good as a signed document. And That's, we've lost that today. And there were witnesses that witnessed your word being spoken and said. Uh, and so that would be the beginning of the formal engagement period. And as far as society was concerned, you were 
married uh, at that point, but not yet consummated. Uh, and so that's kind of a great picture for us as Christians, the, the realities there, but not yet, uh, just like our end of the world picture. So um, they're engaged. At this point, then, the man's job is to get a home ready to go to take care of his wife. And so he would arrange for that to be built or even build it himself, get everything squared away. Uh, he would also build a um, bridal chamber uh, next to his house too uh, for the the marriage to be consummated in and uh, he's working on these things and the the date of the wedding is not set in stone like it is for us you know we get saved the dates years ahead of time sometimes now that was not the case the wedding would be whenever the home was ready and met the approval of the father of the bride and so the the man who's getting everything ready would probably invite the father of the bride over and uh, he would look at things and say, well, this isn't quite ready or this is not uh, squared away perfectly. Uh, or if everything was squared away perfectly, he'd say, all right, everything's ready to go. Let's go get the bride. And uh, whenever that agreement had been made that the house was prepared and ready for them, they would process through town to go over to the bride's house and pick her up. And she had to be ready whenever that was, which kind of fits in with the end of this particular parable. When the bridegroom showed up, the wedding would take place, and so she needed to be ready all the time for that to take place. And um, they would grab the bride, they would process over to the groom's house, the bride and the groom would go into the bridal chamber while the whole town's probably outside waiting and watching, and um, they would consummate the marriage and come out, and there'd be proof of the consummation everybody would celebrate and there'd be a week-long feast and drinking and a reception that took place and that's kind of the the general wedding procedure in a nutshell we we know a little bit about this from the wedding at cana and they ran out of wine as a part of the wedding feast so so we know a little bit about these marriage customs we've talked about this before the uh the scriptures often use the wedding as a metaphor for the relationship between Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, the bride. What we have new in this particular parable, Pastor, is uh, this whole deal with the ten virgins. Uh, I I assume they're bridesmaids. Um, What is the purpose and the function in this wedding thing with regard to these ten virgins? Well, uh, yeah, I, I think they are bridesmaids as well. Uh, the way that everything is written in this particular parable, that gets a little bit confused. And we have to understand bridesmaids at this ancient time were not just the same we have. They're not just friends who stand up there, uh, and neither with groomsmen either. But rather, there's this legally binding contract, and if something happens, then one of these bridesmaids steps into place to take a to take the place of the bride who's gone or, or sick or whatever. And uh, the same thing then with the groomsmen on the uh, other side of things. If the groom dies, then the best man steps in to uh, carry out the marriage to fulfill his end of the contract. And so this is part of what's going on here. And so, yes, uh, these bridesmaids, these ten virgins are very important in that regard. So we have ten bridesmaids, ten virgins, uh, five are foolish and five are wise. According to the text, Vicar, what is the difference between the foolish and the wise? Uh, the foolish didn't uh, have enough oil for their lamps. They were not prepared. Okay. So the wise have oil and the foolish do not. And uh, then it says 
they became drowsy and slept. Not just the foolish, but all ten. The wise and the foolish. They all became drowsy and they all slept. Pastor, what's the significance of the fact that all ten of the bridesmaids fell asleep? Well, I think uh, our Lord is teaching us about ourselves. Um, And I think maybe even we need to step back and talk about what the difference is between foolishness and wisdom, especially according to the wider scriptural account. Um, Remember that uh, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, faith uh, makes one wise. And uh, the fool then, uh, also according to Scripture, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. And so this discussion of foolishness and wiseness has to do with faith. Five have faith, five do not. And the reality is then, as they're waiting, they all fall asleep, which is exactly what we oftentimes do as Christians, right? If you knew for sure that Jesus was coming tomorrow, you would make sure to straighten up today, right? Um, Correct. And none of us straighten things up because we don't know, and we all kind of just plod along through life like uh, it's never actually going to happen, even though it is. And so when Jesus says that all ten fell asleep, he's speaking the truth about us in our world. Uh, I don't know what the right way to say it. It's not a lack of faith, but rather complacency um, or uh, weariness of this world waiting and uh, uh, not realizing that it could be at any day or any moment that Christ comes back. Our uh, our epistle reading for today, uh, the last Sunday of the church here is from 1 Thessalonians 5, and it talks about um, this awakeness and this sleeping it says, uh, for you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but keep awake and be sober. God warns us constantly uh, not to fall asleep to his word, not to fall asleep to the good news of the gospel, not to be lulled into some kind of a uh, false complacency. And yet, because we are saint and sinner, it happens to all of us. We do at some point in time. Do we have faith in the promises of God, or are we fools and think that we can do things on our own? And, and you'll notice those that idea of faith or no faith is separated from the complacency. Both groups are complacent, um, but when the when the clock strikes the right hour, uh, the faith then all of a sudden springs into work. And remembering that faith is a gift—that's kind of a neat thing to see. And all of a sudden, the bridegroom comes. The uh, the ten virgins wake up. The uh, the wise virgins uh, trim their lamps. Um, they, uh, they, they trim the wick, they, uh, uh, light their lamps, they're ready to go, but the foolish versions, because they have no oil, they can't trim their lamps, they can't light a light, they can't do anything, they're stuck. Pastor, I think of this, um, having a lamp with no oil in it. I think of this with, uh, kids that sometimes go to school with their lunchbox, but the lunchbox is empty. Or... Uh, Maybe if someone is wandering across the desert and they have a canteen, but there's no water in the canteen. Is Is that a fair description of what's happening here? Yeah, I think in a way, um, 
These little lamps, in fact, they're still archaeological examples of these wedding lamps, uh, would be little handheld lamps, kind of like a flashlight, right? Um, and the idea being that way you can see where you're going uh, for your own self. And the way that they worked back then, they didn't need D-sized batteries or, or whatever. Uh, what they needed was olive oil because that's what burned in all these lamps. That was the light. And so if you have enough oil to make it for wherever you're going, that's good. If you don't, then you need more, and there's the difference. And uh, it all has to do with readiness, which is a result, a fruit of faith, um, that we are ready to go at any time, and some are not. They're going to need a time of repentance, but that is not offered. I like that uh, picture with the uh, flashlight. You wouldn't take a flashlight with dead batteries or with no batteries. Uh, You would be prepared. You would make sure that the lamp or the flashlight lights before you go out into the dark. Keep that in mind. We're going to take a look some more at our gospel reading for the last Sunday of the church here, Matthew 25, 1 to 13. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. at noon on KNNA. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Wake awake, for night is flying. We're looking at the readings for the last Sunday of the church year, and uh, we will be singing that hymn at Good Shepherd on the last Sunday of the church year. Please join us. We're located at 3825 Wildbriar Lane in South Lincoln. We are... uh, uh, having our worship services on Sunday morning at 8 and 10.30 with Sunday school for all ages in between. This uh, particular week, we will be uh, celebrating Thanksgiving, our national day of Thanksgiving, so you can join us Wednesday evening at 6.30 and also Thursday, the 28th of November at 9 a.m., two opportunities to celebrate Thanksgiving Day. All of our worship services are live on KNNALP here in Lincoln, 95.7 FM. Check out our website, www.thecross957.org. Our archives are always available, and we'd love to have your feedback. We're looking at the readings for the last Sunday in the church year. 
Matthew 25, 1-13, the parable of the ten virgins. Uh, Pastor, we've been, uh, we've been talking about this whole business of oil for the lamp and the ten virgins. They had their lamps, but five were foolish. They didn't bring any oil for the lamp. Um, maybe assuming the bridegroom would probably come during the daytime. I don't know. Uh, but the uh, f- wise ones were uh, wise, and they had oil actually in their lamp, just like they had functioning batteries in a flashlight. Um, and I, I think that's important. I don't mean to interrupt you here. No, pl- uh, please When do. you have the oil in your lamp, then your light can shine forth, which also brings us back to the beginning of Matthew's Gospel in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says those very words, let your light shine. You don't put a, a lamp on a stand and cover it with a basket. Your light needs to shine forth. And when the oil's there, that's exactly what happens. When the oil's not there, the lamp is dark. Uh, and so this is, again, discussing faith. When there's faith there, that's good news. When there's not faith, uh, you can't steal it from your neighbor. The end is there, and you're out of luck. Uh, this idea is also then in the whole Gospel of St. John as well, so uh, kind of an important theme that's in this particular parable. So if it's just that simple, Pastor, that the oil in the lamp represents faith, why didn't the wise virgins share their faith with the foolish virgins? Why didn't they witness to them or evangelize to them? Why didn't they share their faith at this crucial time? This is often a criticism that comes with this particular parable. Uh, What is Jesus teaching us, and why is that maybe a ludicrous kind of an observation? Well, it's making an assumption. That argument's a straw man argument, making an assumption that they haven't, and there's no evidence either way in that particular regard. The truth is, to understand this, uh, I cannot believe in Jesus for you, and you cannot believe for me. Uh, We can be a part of the church, and we can share a common confession of faith, but the faith uh, that saves is on an individual basis. Each person will be judged uh, on their faith, and And faith is a gift from God through the Word, uh, through the working of the Holy Spirit, through the sacraments. And so while it might be a nice thing to say that we ought to share our faith, that's not the way faith works. It's not a commodity that uh, I can give you some of mine and you can give me some of yours. Uh, It is something given by God through His Word in the divine service. Uh, And so we have to keep that idea in mind. Jesus is not teaching us in this parable the importance of witnessing the gospel to the four corners of the earth. This is a parable teaching us to be ready at all times, day and night, because, as you quoted earlier, judgment day cometh and right soon. The bridegroom arriving at a time when the ten virgins did not expect him, in fact, they were sound asleep, is a picture of the end of the world. Is that a is that a accurate description of what's going on here, Pastor? It's it's exactly the right picture, and uh, uh, I think we have to know that that day is coming. And in fact, every moment it gets closer than it was before. Right? Uh, I'm 30 years closer to the end of the world than I was when I was born. Um, that's just the reality of the world. And I think also then it shows the futility of it for those who have no faith when the end comes, when the trumpet sounds, when Christ descends. Um, 
just like in the middle of the night in ancient Israel, when these ladies need to go buy oil, there's no place open, no store open in the middle of the night to do that. Uh, and so if you don't have faith now and be ready for him to come now, there's always the possibility that there will be no opportunity. It's not like... Um, in the Middle Middle Ages, uh, kings oftentimes would want to be baptized on their deathbed uh, so that, you know, look, uh, I have time to do that stuff later. I'll do it then. Uh, right now, it's not that important of a thing. Uh, and I know that's not quite their rationale, but I think it brings across the point. That's not the way it works. You might think, I'll go to church next year and Jesus comes back tomorrow. Then what? I think this is another parable of our Lord uh, about the end times, the, uh, the parable of the, the farmer who gets the big harvest and said, ah, I'm going to build larger uh, grain elevators, and that way I can eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus says, you fool, you're going to die today. That's the reality that all of us have to hold uh, all the time. There might not be a tomorrow to repent and to have faith. So we need to I'm saying this in law terms, right? We need to make sure we have faith now, which is a gift of God given through his word and sacrament. So we've really got two things going on here, Vicar. Um, when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil, get me out of here, take me to be with you in heaven. Uh, this can happen in two ways. This can happen by the triumphant return of Jesus. That could happen at any instant, even before we're done recording this program. Or it can happen when my heart fails and I die. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. When your heart dies, body, uh, and you fail, your body and soul separate, and your body stays here in this world until the new one, and your soul goes to goes to one place or another. That's for sure. Uh, do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred dollars. Uh, when we die, we're either going to heaven or hell, and that is completely determined on whether we have faith in Christ as Savior and Lord, or whether we are foolish and have faith in ourselves. Our uh, our lamp is empty, uh, Pastor. When uh, we get to verse ten. And it says, uh, while the foolish ones were going out to buy, the bridegroom came. Those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. That sounds so unloving and uncaring. The door was shut. What is Jesus teaching us here with these brutally honest and brutally frank words? Well, uh the words are really frank, and that's the reality. When the door is shut, there's no more opportunity. You can't repent after you die. You can't pay for your sins. In there's purgatory. no second chance. There's no second chance. Uh -huh. Once it's over, it's over. But I, I want to point out the fact that um, the way this is even worded, and I think the picture is really important as well, when the groom and the father of the bride were coming to pick up the bride for the wedding, there was a large crowd of people with them. There might have been shouting and singing and happy songs and maybe even the blow of shofars, which is how they know the bridegroom is coming That's what before he gets there. That's what woke them up. And sure. so um, we have that as well. There are signs that the end is coming, right? Uh, wars and rumors of wars, uh, lightnings and flashing of thunder and all the things that God tells us, you know, um, conflict that is increasing, increasing, the church looking like it's being persecuted more and more and more. Jesus gives us signs that the end are coming. Those signs are happening, <laughs> and they have been happening, I know, for 
2,000 years, which is perhaps why we're falling asleep. But the truth is, the signs are there that the end is drawing near. And so we have no excuse when the door is shut, because if we're paying attention, we would be able to see that this is the reality of the world. And I think that's where the uh, the worldly obsession with climate change really is a uh, marvelous opportunity for Christians to witness and evangelize to the truth. This is a sign of the coming of the end of the world. The world will end. How will it end with ice or with fire or yeah i don't know but it will end and we should be ready today uh this is not a time to double down on your recycling although there's nothing wrong with recycling it's to double down on getting back to church and listening to the word of god and i think the way to say it is um it's all good and fine to recycle or to do these things or to drive an electric car or, or I don't know, whatever the things they say to do are, so long as you realize that's not the justification for your eternal life and that's not the thing that's going to save you in the end. Only Jesus can save you. And if your faith is in these other things to save you, then you have no oil in your lamp would be the way to say it according to this text. Pastor, when I hear those words, and the door was shut... I can't help but think about Genesis chapter 6 and uh, Noah and the flood and uh, Noah and his family. No one else cared. Everyone thought Noah was a fool. The animals are brought into the ark. The door was shut and the rain began. Am I I, uh, looking at things correctly or incorrectly by making that connection back to Noah? No, I think that is a good example of it. In fact, Peter uses that same example when he talks about the end of the world, and that's where also Peter says there'll never be another flood of water, but there'll be a flood of fire that will bring this world to an end and destroy it. Uh, And so that's the same picture. I think we could also look at Genesis chapter 3, where we have Adam and Eve removed from paradise and an angel with a sword guarding the gate so they cannot get in because the sword flashes back and forth. Uh, there's probably other examples as well that I we could think of and talk about. This is the reality. When the opportunity is gone, it is gone. And with God, um, when he gives and gives and gives and gives, there's really no reason that we shouldn't get in on the first go. The, the last line of our parable, Jesus says, watch therefore for you know neither the day nor the hour. Uh, Vicar, How is that both good news and bad news, law and gospel? Well, it's bad news for those who have no faith, Uh, bad news for those who are foolish uh, and sleeping. If uh, the day or the hour were to come up before the end of this recording right now, um, I I know handfuls and handfuls and handfuls of people who... uh, who are not faithful in believing that Jesus Christ has died for their sins completely. And uh, for those of us who can, in gospel, look forward not so to the end of the world, but to the new world, the new world of the new world, the new earth, the new heavens, the new creation. Wake, awake, for night is flying. Judgment day cometh, and right soon be ready. Have oil in your lamps. Believe the word of God. Believe that God has loved you and me and the whole world, poor miserable sinners, with an everlasting love. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. He has uh, prepared a mansion for you. Uh, The wedding feast is set. 
Come and enjoy the wedding feast Christ has prepared. This is Proclaiming the One. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the Old Testament reading for the last Sunday of the church year, Isaiah 65, 17 to 25. Don't change that dial. I hate to break into that awesome hymn, but uh, this is Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for the last Sunday in the church here. Wake, awake, for night is flying. When we look at the state of the world, when we look at the state of sin and evil in the world, and even as it has crept into the church, all we can say is, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Our Old Testament reading. For the last Sunday in the church here, Isaiah 65, 17 to 25. Vicar, please. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their their descendants with them. For they call, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Pastor, Isaiah here in chapter 65 is talking about creating new heavens and a new earth. Is this something that is happening now or is this something that god is promising and prophesying for the future well uh, this is uh, <clears throat> we talked about this a little bit with our gospel lesson the idea that it is a now but not yet and so um it is 
reality and um, yet we don't experience or understand it and we won't until we leave this world one way or another and uh, it does have its ultimate fulfillment on the last day when this world will be destroyed and the new heavens and the new earth will be there and created and we will inherit those and live in those um, we have to understand that we live in a world that exists with time and space and God lives outside of that world, exists outside of that world uh, and has even created this one and so to try and put specific times and things to uh, those things is very difficult for us to do. But what we're talking here is like metaphor, right? Uh, when God says he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, he doesn't really mean that, does he? He absolutely means it, yes. You're trying to tell me that God will destroy the heaven and earth as we know it and recreate a new one? Well, I, I mentioned it earlier. This is Second Peter chapter 3, uh, where he says, um, They will say, Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they have from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world then existed, and it was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So if you're a Christian and you believe the Bible, you believe, yes, the world will come to an end, being destroyed with fire and purged of all the sin and the evil that uh, exists therein. I'm, I'm being ornery and being the devil's advocate here. I know. Because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can tell by the look on your face. But the, the sad reality is the vast majority of Bible-believing Christians that I encounter, they don't really believe this. They don't take it. I mean, maybe they pay lip service to it, but very, very few Christians really think that God is going to destroy the heavens and the earth and create a new one. They are clinging so tightly to the things of this world, maybe even to their own life or their own body. The last thing they want is for that to be destroyed. The last thing they want is for Jesus to come again. Is that uh, is that your experience too, Pastor? Well, it definitely is uh, the reality of many people here. You see this even in silly things like who has the biggest um, headstone in the cemetery, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Or who's left an endowment that actually will affect the world and change it, right? It sounds really nice, but the truth is, is that that won't last forever. You're, the pyramids, they may have been here for the last 3,000 years, but they won't be here forever. They will come to an end. They will be destroyed by fire, and uh, uh, only those things which have faith will make it into the next world, the world of hope and peace and comfort and joy. And uh, that's what we have to understand, and that's the whole point of the parable that we read, and that's the point of this particular Old Testament lesson as well. If, uh, if you have a hard time with this, folks, just read the book of Ecclesiastes. The wisest man in the world, King Solomon, the richest man in the world, King Solomon, the most oversexed man in the world, King Solomon, 300 wives, 700 concubines, all of the things that the world clings to today. And what does Solomon say at the end of his life? Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Everything apart from God, everything apart from the Word of God. I want to shift gears here a little bit because we have... 
at the end of Isaiah uh, 65, we have some of the words that are quoted by human beings today uh, for a completely different reason. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Uh, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Swords will be turned into plowshares. These are the mottos of the United Nations. We can bring about world peace by our own efforts. We can fix all the problems of the world. Can't we just all get along? Pastor, these are honest and sincere sentiments by people who are honest and sincere. Why are they taking these kinds of scripture passages completely backwards? Well, the one who actually accomplishes all these things is Jesus Christ uh, crucified and risen. And while it's not bad to try and make this world as good a place as we can, and uh, even to be at peace with our neighbors and uh, uh, country and country to uh, be at peace as well, the reality is is the sinful world will never be perfect. It will never be a utopia. It never... it will never eliminate poverty or suffering or sickness and not even death, right? It will always have death. And so it's not bad to want these things, but we have to look in the right place for this solution to come about, and that's our faith in Christ, uh, and that's the only way these things can be accomplished. So when you say it, you know, can't we just make the world a great place? That's putting the emphasis on us instead of on our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore it's a false hope. We have a a great reversal theme going on in this particular text. We're looking at Isaiah 65, 17 to 25, the Old Testament reading for the last Sunday in the church here. It says, starting in verse 21, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. These are the words that are repeated again and again and again, just the opposite as words of warning. Uh, I seem to remember them first in the book of Deuteronomy. I seem to remember them throughout the major and minor prophets as well. Um, God's call from the prophets to repent. You're going to build a house and somebody else will live in it. You're going to plant a vineyard, and somebody else will drink the wine from the grapes. What is this great reversal that God is giving through Isaiah in chapter 65? Well, it's uh, telling us that telling us what the next world, the eternal world, is going to be like. Um, in the ancient world, the reality was that you could plant and you could build and you could do these things, but you never knew what the future held. There might be an army that invaded a, a few days after you complete your project and take the things that you have away from you or take you away from the things that you have and replace them with their own people. Um That's not the way it will be in heaven because everything will be perfect. There will be no sin. There will be no coveting. There will be no desire for other people's things. And God will continue to pour out blessings upon all people uh, across the board. And that's the good news and the promise that there is. And so there is a great reversal. And like I've said about a million times here, that reversal only comes through the work of Jesus Christ crucified and risen to take away the sins of the world. There will be no death as well. And even today, people buy a fancy car, build a fancy house, uh, buy a new farm or some other uh, uh, investment property, and they never get to enjoy it because they die. 
This is the reality of the world that we live in. But in the new heaven and the new earth, no sin, no sorrow, no suffering, no death, no coveting. The old things have passed away. The new have come. We have to you know, be careful as we say these things. It's not saying that owning a farm is bad or building a house is bad. Uh, those things are just fine so long as your faith is in the right place. And that's the important thing that we need to remember. The word that God gives us through Isaiah in chapter 65, be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. And I think that ties in well with what you said, Pastor. Everything that we have and everything that we are in this world right here and right now is gift. Rejoice in it. Love it. Live it. Uh, Enjoy the fruits that God has given you, pure gift. Don't cling to it too tightly. Don't turn it into a false god or a false idol because it has no power to save. The one who has given you everything has also given you Jesus. And in his blood and in his righteousness, we have nothing to fear. Not climate change, not cancer, not anything. Because Christ is victorious over sin, death, and the grave. Vicar, would you bring this to a close as we pray the collect for the last Sunday of the church year? Let us pray. O Lord, absolve your people from their offenses that from the bonds of our sins, which by reason of our frailty we have brought upon ourselves, we may be delivered by your bountiful goodness through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. This has been Proclaiming the One, last Sunday in the church here. Also be reminded that this upcoming week we have Thanksgiving services Wednesday evening and Thursday morning. Sunday morning when you get up, read your paper, drink your coffee, pray for your pastor, and go to church. Fill up your lamps, hear the word of God, and believe it. God's richest blessings in Christ.